0: what's up everybody welcome to the artists of data science podcast today we've got a conversations episode where we get to hear from people who are doing interesting work pursuing their dreams and adding value to the world within inside their heads see what makes them tick and hopefully walk away with a new perspective that will help us in our journey so these episodes as you know are much less structured far less formal than what you normally hear on the show they're gonna be raw unedited unproduced for the most part Thanks for tuning in, and I would love to hear what you think about these episodes. Feel free to email me at theartistsofdata science at gmail.com with your thoughts. Our guest today is none other than our good friend, Carlos Mercado. Carlos has been on the show before on a full podcast episode but also he's a regular part of our happy hours super excited to have him on to the show we're going to talk about his book that he wrote that's all about blockchain defi and some thoughts yeah blockchain that is? thoughts and
1: decentralized finance economics there we go condensed <laughs>
0: We'll definitely put a link to the, the book in the show notes for that, man. But man, let's dig right into it, man. It's a lot of great stuff you're talking about in your book. I really, really enjoyed it. But first, let's just start, start off by talking to us about how you got interested in blockchain in the first place.
1: Yes. I mean, I think everyone who's like right at our age was remembering like being in college or after college, hearing about Bitcoin, hearing about this thing that was six cents. Now it's $10 just skyrocketing and you're like, oh, I should buy some of that. But you didn't know how to do it. I didn't even know the scams with like Mt. Gox and, and like all these other scams coming out about how hard this to like, get set up. You really didn't start hearing about blockchain and like non-Bitcoin coins really for me until like 2017 with kind of like the release of the major central exchanges, like Coinbase being one of the biggest ones. They're going to IPO soon, probably at over 100 bill. And I think that's underpriced, not financial advice. So yeah, I got into blockchain just hearing about that stuff and knowing about like the history of economics. There's a concept called Hayekian money from the 70s, which is very blockchain similar, adjacent. The idea being of like privatized money, you imagine stock serving as money. But to be honest, the blockchain part of the blockchain, I really got interested in. I would say like a year ago in like summer of 2020, uh, a friend of mine who's been in the space, especially in NFTs and art and music and things like that, he was really getting me involved we would read white papers about things like Ample, which is an interesting decentralized stablecoin. And I was just getting into the economics of it all. I was like, oh, wow, like this is technology. And like all of our economic theory of Hayekian money, like finally combined. And I was just like, I was super into it for the economics of it. I had no clue about like the finance side of it. I know people think economics and finance are the same. They're very different. But yeah, that was it for me. I just like was hearing about it. And then I got really into the tokenomics and crypto economic papers coming out on different coins.
0: Yeah, man. Super, super fascinating stuff. So what was this thing? Heckian money. How do you spell that?
1: Yeah, Hayekian. So it's after uh, Hayek, the famous economist, H-A-Y-E-K. And he's one of the, I don't think they are call him the father of any of the movements, but it, his writing is very libertarian in the concept of like just like let markets work. And his idea was that instead of having a dollar, like a government-backed dollar, just let random corporations develop like, whatever they want as a medium of exchange. And we'll just do what the market does, which is interesting because it's almost like what if we treated corporate bonds as money? Like what if I could just like go to Walmart and pay Walmart stock to buy my Walmart goods? That's almost that kind of like interchange, but doing it at scale. So I could like, you know, buy Amazon stock with Walmart stock instead of using money in
0: the medium. Super interesting. And yet, excellent point here. We're going to talk a lot about all sorts of <laughs> financial types of, I guess it's finance strategies, but none of it should be taken as investment advice for you personally. So just that disclaimer. Yeah. And let Don't.
1: me get that big disclaimer too. When you open the book, the first thing you're going to see is not financial advice. I am not a CFA. I'm not a talent. I have no mechanism to understand your personal financial situation. My goal, which I say in the book, is to transfer my way of thinking to like a book so that you can understand how i think about this stuff in a sort of economics and finance so that you can make an intelligent decision of like what percent of my investment portfolio should i allocate to this crazy bitcoin nonsense
0: yeah and that same disclaimer applies for me <laughs> to not come after me if you go broke please so this something you talked about in there but first let me ask this who who did you write this book for
1: yeah, so I was actually, it's interesting. So I was sitting there talking to Greg Kukio after the uh, one of our office hours. And I was telling him about blockchain for AI because I was paper I was reading about for fun. And he was super interested, but he said he had no clue about anything in blockchain. And I was like, if I write something, will you like read it and share it around all your little friends at Amazon? And he was like, yeah, yeah, send me something. So I just sat down and for four days straight, I just wrote everything that I knew about blockchain as simple as I could and why it was a big deal and how the money and the finance and economic parts are all good. So I wrote it for Greg, (laughs) but also, and I ended up writing it for me too, because it was a way to put it all on paper in like a linear order of reading so that I could revisit it. And I could be like, Oh, if I had this in 2014 or 2012 or 2017, like it would have changed my life. And hopefully I can, Someone can read this this year and not have that regret in 2025 or 2030 or whatever.
0: Yeah, man. Like writing is the best way to get clear on thinking. I think that's, that's the, the huge benefit of writing your thoughts out. It makes you think a little bit more clearly about, about stuff. So you're also talking about some like stable coin. What the heck does that even mean?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. So here's the idea, right? There's a lot of stock out there, right? Uh, and stocks go up and down in price. There's also things called bonds. They also go up and down in price. One of the most stable bonds is the US Treasury bond. It gives you the right to some fraction of the interest payments paid to the US national debt. And it's very, very low in interest rate. It's very, very stable in its value. Like it goes up like 2% like a year at best. So it's like a stable, it's like literally doesn't change in value. And it's interesting because a lot of stock theory studies this stuff and they find. They're going 100% in stocks, you know, goes up and down like crazy, and it's it can be good for your portfolio to have a small portion at like a stable small amount of growth, like a you know treasury bonds or something like that. A stable coin is very similar to that concept. It doesn't grow necessarily like some percentage a year. Most stable coins are attempting to be the U.S. one U.S. dollar on the crypto markets. Uh, and that's very good for de-risking like getting out of crypto into a stable coin without having to go all the way to cash in a bank account. You know, you can unrisk while still being in the space and in the exchanges.
0: So what is it that drives the the price of the coins to go like super high and skyrocket what what causes that to happen?
1: Specifically stable coins or all or just
0: coins? yeah, just all coins in general, right? Like what causes them yeah. just to, to blow up? Yeah, so price?
1: there's a few different types of stable coins. There's some really interesting one that use market dynamics to try to be stable. So they actually change their demand. They they change their supplies. They increase and decrease their supplies to hit one dollar. But to answer your question outside of stable, it's like why do Bitcoin go? Why does Bitcoin go up? Why does the Ethereum go up? They all have their own individual like technologies. And something I say a lot in the book is like don't worry too much about like the coin. Don't worry about like the Bitcoin and the Ethereum, like focus on the underlying technology. And if you can see that underlying technology making an improvement to the global economy, and if you do think that, then figure out how you can be positioned to make investments into that technology and not that implementation of the technology. So I'm not saying go buy Bitcoin. What I'm saying is like understand why it's making such big waves in global finance And see if that technology can be part of your portfolio and doing our research, of course. So, why do these things go up? Uh, The demand. I mean, the thing is, you know, we have a billion people, uh, even in the United States, about 20% of people are unbanked. You stretch that out, we're talking about 30 to 50% of the world being underbanked. Uh, You're going to hear about microloans, all this stuff, PayPal, Facebook taking money now with LibreCoin, that was a whole thing. You'll find people interested in getting the global financial system more simplified and more democratized and into people's cell phones all over the world, including developing countries. So why is it growing? It's because it's, it's it's working. Like people are experiencing this like easy flow of assets that they can transfer freely without needing to deal with central banks. And hey, I'm not saying you shouldn't deal with central banks, pay your taxes, please, but you know it just it smooths operations of money. Remittances, if you study remittances, in the U.S. economy, I believe about $80 billion is earned in the United States and then sent to people outside of the United States. So people, immigrants who come here, they work and they send money back. That's a massive industry. There's no reason it should cost you $10 to send $100. That's a huge disruption opportunity for this technology. So, you know, why is it going up? Because there are inefficiencies that can be made efficient. And it's, it's happening right now.
0: So when people talk about like blockchain and crypto, like can we conflate those two? Like when I say crypto, does that just mean a coin or does crypto also refer to blockchain? Is there a clear Yeah. Solution?
1: So, so blockchain is a specific technology and yeah, let's talk about what blockchain is. Blockchain is immutable record keeping using typically decentralized part like nodes. And what you can get out of that is if you read the, the first paragraph, the Bitcoin paper does a really good job of explaining this, but like, The internet has a double spend problem. Like if I want to buy something from 10 different websites and I have $100 in my bank account, it's very difficult for me to just say, yeah, yeah, I have the money in a bank account. Don't worry. Let me buy $20 of this, $20 of this, $20 of this. Because I can just spend that in multiple places and abuse the fact that it takes days for banks to really reconcile accounts and things like that digitally. So it's a double spend problem. What Bitcoin kicked off was the idea that you could have incentives be aligned to computers such that they have a reason to have extremely rapid, extremely agreeable mechanisms to like record transactions. So like, I want to give you $10 in in exchange for something. There's a system out there that benefits from me giving you that money in a way that can't be changed. And that's very persistent memory wise. And that's the blockchain piece of it. So the blockchain is blocks that cannot be changed strung together in a way cryptographically such that you can't like you can't really do fraud. Um, and I'm not saying fraud it's not impossible. In the book I detail how it's actually trivially easy to change an entire blockchain. The hard part is that it's almost impossible to change a single block. So that immutability, that really fraud resistance, the fact that people are rewarded by participating in adding to the blockchain, the blockchain is a system of recording transactions. They do not have to be financial in nature. They can be information in nature. Uh, You know, who was told this information recently? We read blockchain for AI papers. There's a lot of ideas out there and blockchain serving as, you know, metadata storage for like parameters and AI models. So we're not talking money at all. We're talking about an immutable record that says, oh, this AI model was trained on this type of data with these parameters at this time period. And that's immutable and all this stuff. So there's a lot of stuff there in terms of like, perfect quote-unquote databases that's not just money the crypto side of it is the money side of it it's a cryptographic asset so because it's the blocks are cryptographically connected through hash functions and stuff that i can transfer bits to you and back and we know who has what money so the crypto side is the money side the blockchain stuff is the technology of immutable record keeping
0: so why have blockchain we have paypal like what's what like isn't paypal doing all this stuff for me,
1: yeah. So, great question. So, the difference is, and this is where we get into the D and decentralized finance and DeFi. The idea is that you a resilient system is a system that has that does not have like single points of failure, right? So, I'm going I'm to pick on the Federal Reserve for a bit here. Uh, last month, a time of recording, there was a day in February, I think, actually, that uh, like a bunch of the ACH. Uh, Federal Reserve like banking systems, they were down for a day. So like banks were having trouble reconciling their account between themselves, between other banks, with the with the Fed. Some people want to know this because you know, I studied money in banking in college and economics, but like pe- the banks are using the Federal Reserve like pretty much every night to meet reserve requirements. So they're borrowing money from the Fed and things like that. So when these centralized massive systems have glitches, it causes a lot of problems. I mean, even we saw the Suez Canal. Like, it's going to be outdated when you see when you hear this. But I mean, a simple ship blocking billions of dollars of exchange. So the single points of failure are very risky. And what decentralized finance does is it incentivizes anonymous participants into a network, such that you, you know, the fraud is reduced, but also that like you don't need any one of them. Like they, like you could have people tag in and tag out and not affect anything. So it's a resilient system to have it decentralized. And we saw that with the Federal Reserve. I mean, we saw this, we saw this all the time with technology companies, like going bust, losing data.
0: Yeah, so, so let's back it up just a little bit before we go forward. So you, you're talking about how finance and economics are different. We're talking about money here. First, 1st first, let's, let's back up and, and talk about what is finance.
1: Yeah, so let me start with economics. I, in my head, economics is... Making decisions under constraints, typically in the context of money, but also in the context of value in general, including like constraints that include you not feeling the constraints. So, like externalities and things like that. So, like pollution and economics go together because someone's paying for that. Someone has to breathe in that bad air. So, economics is a system of like incentives and exchanges of value and generation of value under constraints. Finance is really the overarching system of money. And that includes creating money, giving it to people in exchange for goods, counting it, storing it, actually providing credit to people. So finance is like everything to do with money and economics is like making decisions about value under constraints. And they have obviously huge overlaps because making decisions under constraints applies to money. So There is financial economics too. But that's how I think of finance in my head everything to the money side of it
0: yeah i like that I like that distinction is very very clear cut so let's talk about money then so like what is money and like why does inflation or why should inflation affect how we think about money
1: yeah so there's uh that classic definition of money there's three definitions money is a medium of exchange so if i have tvs but i want hamburgers I'm just making joke stuff now. You know, I can do two things. I can go out and find the exact person who has hamburgers but wants TVs, which is very difficult to do. Or I could sell the TVs for something more liquid and then use that other more liquid thing to trade out for hamburgers. That liquid thing being money most often. But it could also be something that's, it could be very, very nice rocks. It could be anything that people accept. Um, So that's the medium exchange. There's then unit of account. You can count money. You can have a dollar, $10. You can have half a dollar. That fraction part of it, you know, that makes it the unit of account. You can count it. And the third one is a store of value. And I'm going to go ahead and kind of hold this one off and just kind of deal with what inflation is really quick. So I brought up hamburgers. That's in the book too. You could imagine an economy that's all hamburger based, right? So like I have, I work at McDonald's. I sell hamburgers. I get paid in hamburgers. It's all I eat. Well, that's great and fine, but hamburgers spoil. So I can get paid in hamburgers, but then I have to carry them around. I have to eat them before they go bad, and when they go bad, they're gone. So what ends up happening naturally in this fake economy is you get burger coupons. Coupons, you know, they last longer. They can crumple. They can rip. I can lose them. they can get burned. They can still spoil. But at least they're, you know, they're sore value. I can, hold the, I can hold the burger for a long time. Now, to get into money is, you know, money is those three things, store of value, unit of account, medium of exchange. But generally speaking, things in any economy are going to go up in price over time. So why would hampers go up in price over time naturally? You know, because that one millionth cow, uh, you know, you have to feed it on one millionth packet of food. And to make that one millionth packet, you needed a lot of equipment to go from 500 packages a day to a million packages a day, whatever. So costs go up, which leads to the price of goods going up. When efficiencies happen, prices go down. What you need to remember of inflation, and I'm going to say the opposite of inflation, is called interest. Inflation is when the price of something goes up and you're mad about it. And then interest, or well, I'll get to also investment. Investment is when the price of something goes up and you're happy about it. And I think that's the simplest way to think about it. Price go up mad, inflation. Price go up happy, investment. So, when your health, education, food, energy, when those prices go up, you're mad. But, stock markets or the value of your home, when those things go up in price, you're happy. And that's the simplest method of defining the two. And how does that relate to money? Well, money constantly has to get made, right? Because money's getting spoiled. And there's going to be a mismatch of how much money is created and how much is destroyed. And generally, you're going to create more than gets destroyed. So the amount of money out there is going to go up, and that means prices are going to go up because there's more money available for to for things to take up that you know excess. So I'm kind of simplifying a ton of concepts and like money creation processes, but
0: yeah. <laughs> also, I would say another. Thing about money that makes it so valuable is just the fungibility, right? Like one dollar is one dollar is one dollar. Like we can change dollar bills. I mean, I assume we were talking. Yeah, that's medium exchange, and yeah,
1: that's yeah. a unit of account. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, like, what does like all this stuff, man, that you're talking about with with money what does any of this have to do with blockchain? And why are people going bonkers over blockchain?
1: Yeah. So the history, right? So remember the global financial crisis in two thousand eight. Uh, I was preceded by a really large bubble in housing, but also some bubble in um stock markets as well, uh, especially after the dot com burst you know after the dot com bubble, Amazon went down like ninety percent total and now it's going to run ever since so when the global financial crisis happened around two thousand and eight, people were very fed up with financial systems i mean you can remember occupy wall street movements, you can remember uh break up the banks, a lot of new legislation globally even around like separating investment banking from standard checking and savings banking to kind of limit this stuff, new legislation around mortgage lending and not allowing ninja loans, no income, no job, no asset loans. So there's a huge financial meltdown. And right afterwards, you start hearing about this thing called Bitcoin, which is the peer to peer digital system that would allow you to exchange Bitcoins to other people in a way that cannot be double counted. So, like, when I give someone the Bitcoin, I can't use that same exact Bitcoin to give it to someone else because of the blockchain. So, the financial crisis leading to Bitcoin, which required the development of blockchain to prevent the double spend problem for Bitcoin, that's really the nexus of, like, okay, this blockchain stuff is really, really useful for digital money, and it's also able to maybe decentralized which gets us out of this problem of relying on large banks, which can collapse like Bear Stearns. So yeah, I mean, it it has to do with blockchain because it all started together. Like it started together. Finance system collapsed, Bitcoin, blockchain. Today, what does it have to do with, you know, how does it all work together? We're going to see blockchain technologies like increase in use for a few reasons. You know, the globalization part of it and the book I talk about governance, which we'll get to, but also like NFTs, non-fungible tokens. This provides you a mechanism to have scarcity in an environment that isn't amenable to scarcity. So when I, when you send me a copy of a PDF, it doesn't hurt your PDF at all. But scarcity itself is something that people want. People want things to be scarce so that they can value it. And that's what a non fungible token does. It uses the blockchain to provide scarcity to digital assets. So in terms of video games, for example, you know I know I played a lot of RuneScape growing up. There's potty hats. There's only so many party hats, right? And it was scarce because the company who ran the game made it scarce. If there was a way for me to just copy paste it from someone and put it on my hat, I would have, but that scarcity created value. This, what does it do, you know, what does it all have to do together? People in the digital world want things to be scarce and blockchain enables you to make scarce digital things. And that is a massive, massive shift into how we need to think about like digital technology the keywords at
0: Google there are definitely web three um, metaverse, things like that. And, and if you guys interested further, you know, about you know, NFTs and Ethereum and blockchain and things like that, check out the interview I did with Jonathan rashantel should be the one right before this one. Uh, we go deep into blockchain. Uh, we'll talk about all that interesting stuff. Uh, like I'm personally really I'm captivated by Ethereum. I think Ethereum is like the future. They've got like this whole concept of smart contracts. You can build games on Ethereum. There's a mm-hmm. there's like the dark forest, I think is the one game that is entirely built on Ethereum it, It's fascinating stuff. So definitely go check out that the interview I did with Jonathan to get more detail on that. Yeah,
1: I, I'm not going to do that to you twice. So all the listeners go back to that previous one. Cause I'm not going to go super into the blockchain side of things and I'll let Jonathan do it. I think we talked about why people are bonkers about blockchain.
0: Yeah, but what? Why are people hating on it? Because I like some of the arguments that you uh, you outlined about why people are, are hating on it. Yeah,
1: so I mean, I think the there's good arguments against this stuff. It's Dutch tulips. It's a bubble. It's gonna pop. Like, yeah, dude. I mean, when HTTP came out, everybody and their mom got like a domain name service registry for their website. If you had .com in your company name you were like 40% more valuable overnight so we had like I was alive in the 90s I remember like the, like we saw bubbles happen but guess what they popped and the technology that was real outlasted bad implementations we lost pets.com now we have Chewy and Amazon like the web wasn't stupid just because like a bunch of websites were stupid uh, and I think that's like so I'm kind of Talking back about the haters, but what are the good hater arguments? Oh, this is a bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Focus on the technology not the implementation. NFTs being right-click save. That's funny. That's not digital scarcity. You misunderstand digital scarcity and why it's valuable. Look more into that. The other hater arguments are like, oh, well, you know, this stuff's useless if countries ban it. You know, Nigeria and India are two of the most prominent ones that come to mind in terms of their efforts to ban this stuff. There was a senator in the junior in the Senate who's gotten pretty big online saying that Bitcoin and blockchain are going to be the end of government. That guy gets it. I think a lot of people have not picked that up yet. And I talk about governance in my book. The other hater arguments besides, you know, oh, government's going to ban it. It's too decentralized to ban. Governments are going to shut down the internet. This stuff's useless without the internet. That's a pretty good one. You know, if you destroy the internet as we know it, Bitcoin will suffer a lot. But again, it's not technically true. Bitcoin's like a, a technology. You could do Bitcoin on a piece of paper if you want. You just need to custom hash functions and then you and a hundred friends could use the Bitcoin methodology between the, whatever number of you. Um, so that's not totally true. The biggest one I get is, oh, you know, if the power goes out, if there's a global collapse, uh, the electricity system goes down, then you can't use this stuff. And if you're at that level of like, well, if this insane black swan society dies happens, then it's useless. I agree, man. If electricity goes away, Bitcoin will not, will be like the least of my problems. Like I'll have way worse problems if I lose electricity for the rest of my life. So yeah, I mean, those are the common hater arguments. I think the bubble one and the government interference one are important to note. I think something that people don't realize as a really good hater argument is that most people don't like complex stuff. So, I mean, that's my biggest hater argument is that like, Oh yeah, like Bitcoin and stuff's all cool or whatever. But really, what do people want? People want decentralized financial opportunity, and you can give them that without blockchain. And I think a very forward-looking government can create, you know, publicly audited, open-source financial protocols that are not decentralized and give people upper- financial opportunities for their people, you know, regardless of their current standing finance. And they could definitely make this stuff not needed anymore. Like, why do you want to spend like $50 in tr- Ethereum transactions if your go- government's central exchange for this stuff is free and it lets you invest in different technologies free and it's all centralized, but hey, you don't need to deal with Bitcoin. You can deal with the dollar as a reserve currency, this financial system. So the, big, the best hater argument is just that governments can try their best to do better. And I hope that's true.
0: I think China is probably an interesting case study for government interference with Bitcoin, considering how they have blocked port 8333 and some weird stuff is happening there. So uh, there's the episode I was listening to with so Tim Ferriss and Balaji Srinivasan called like the title is the episode of everything where they go deep into essentially Bitcoin and, and blockchain. But yeah, they're talking about China might have to have its own separate chain and yeah, weird weirdness Go check that out. That's
1: not too crazy. uh, I mean, there's already forks of this stuff. So, I mean, when we say it's decentralized, you really do want to think of like open source protocols. People fork all the time, these protocols. It would not be strange for someone to fork Bitcoin. There's already Bitcoin SV, Bitcoin Cash. There's already like things that require splitting of the communities that are involved in technologies. I would not be surprised to hear about independent Chinese blockchain. I think my argument about well, the hater arguments are interestingly, I think China's done a good job and honestly, because I'm pro-China. I think they've done a successful job in limiting the need for some of these decentralized technologies. Uh, you know, they have some of the most advanced 5G in the world. You're, there's a singular app, as I think WeChat, that is an entire ecosystem to their internet. I mean, you can order a cab, And buy a pizza, and buy a T-shirt, and pay your rent, all in like one minute within the same application. So I mean, like, like I said, you know, governments can just meet all of these demands within a centralized interface, and they will succeed in limiting the adoption of some of these technologies. And maybe China will be a good use case example for that. And I don't say good as in a positive. I support it. I meant good as in successful.
0: That's really, really interesting. Yeah, thanks for, for talking about that. Let's get, let's get into the, the second half of our conversation here, talking about part two of your book, which I found really insightful and interesting. As someone myself who really has not been good with investing my money, meaning it's just been sitting in, in bank-run mutual funds, probably not the best use, use of, of all this money that, that I've got, and just trying to, trying to educate myself on how to do investing better, I found Part two of the book really insightful, and you know took a lot away from it. And again, remember, people, this is not investment advice for you personally, individually. Uh, we're just we're just talking here. So uh, let's start with talking about how you define retirement.
1: Yeah. So and let me take a quick note on your bank mutual funds. You'll the best use of your money is the use of your money that you're most comfortable with in the context of your risk preferences. So again, it's not financial advice. The goal is to help you understand new things so that you can incorporate into your risk profile and your risk preferences. And you can align your investments to your risk profile and risk preferences, which is ultimately the best thing you can do for your money. Because if you do things that are outside of your risk comfort zone, you will make mistakes. and You don't want to do that. So how do I define retirement? So the second half of the book, you know, is my favorite too. I think I don't care much about different implementations of these technologies. I've never been one to care about that much of stuff. I like economics. And I like money because I like freedom. So when people think of retirement, you know, the thing that comes to mind is in the United States, especially is being 65, you're eligible for social security, eligible for Medicare, eligible for different uh, social services and things like that. And what does it mean? It means like you're not working. That's like, the classic definition of retirement. Historically speaking, that's actually an anomaly for multiple reasons. One, the reason that the Medicare age is 65, that's going to get my social justice, I worked really quick, is because the average life expectancy of Black Americans was below 65 until the mid 90s. So that was like a massive way for the government to transfer Black money to uh, others that are not Black uh, through government programs. And there's a lot of research you can do on the Wagner Act, Social Security Act, and its racist upbringing and all this stuff. Uh, I actually have a great book for that separately. So, anyway, you know, why did why I bring this up? Retirement to me is the Final phase of your working life. And that is not meaning to be old. Historically speaking, you know, 1800s and prior, you worked until you couldn't. And when you couldn't, you relied on charity and family. Retirement to me does not need to be old. It does not need to be needing charity or family. Retirement to me is the final phase of your working life. And I, I'm going to get on a lot of high horses for this, France. Sorry. There's this idea that, like, if you don't work, you're lazy, or if you don't like produce, you're bad. There's historical reasons for that. If you look at historical records of like how people think of societies, you'll read a lot about like young men and like kind of how young men as a part of society have really been something that needs to be controlled and suppressed in different societies. You know, why is there a draft? Why is all this other stuff? You know, sixteen to twenty-four year old men commit most crimes. Blah blah blah. blah. Like a lot of societies' structures are built around containing this very volatile group. And I'm bringing that up as a segue into this. So people have these, these historical precedents. They have these ideas that if you're not producing, that you're lazy, you're bad. And I get these arguments with people about the process of work ethic. And like, I am not telling you to like work to save up a little bit of money and then eat PB&J so you never have to work again. That's not my goal. I'm not trying to tell you to quit being productive, whatever that means. I'm not trying to tell you to quit contributing to society. I'm telling you that if if you accept retirement as the final phase of your working life, well, what are the phases of a working life? And they're kind of getting the next idea here. I talk about four different phases in like a person's financial and working life. When you're starting out at level one, you're paycheck to paycheck, like one emergency and you're completely broke. You don't have any freedom. You don't have any flexibility. You can't change jobs. It's too risky. You change jobs and the offer date gets moved two weeks for some administrative reason that could tank your finances. You, have, you, don't, you, have, you can't take any risks. Level two, you know, you have an emergency fund. You can withstand emergencies. You can change jobs and miss a paycheck for that friction. You can get laid off and last a month or two. Level three, you know, you're financially secure. You can withstand most emergencies. You can change jobs at will you be unemployed for a year if you needed to, take, either taking a sabbatical or because you have a very difficult economy locally with structural unemployment, uh, and you're not too worried about it. And then level four is what I want people to think of retirement as. Like retirement is not you're 65 and you're like, oh, and you can't work anymore. Like retirement needs to be you are at the final phase of your working life, which means you are financially independent. And financially independent means that you have complete control. Over how you enter and exit the labor market, including possibly never again, and living off passive income or savings. I want everybody to get out of this book that retirement is not something you do when you're old. It's just the final phase of your working life, and that means you're independent, and that means freedom. Okay, that was a really long hide horse. Sorry, hard. <laughs>
0: oh, dude, I 100% agree with you, man. Like the purpose of wealth is freedom, so you can do what you want with your time you know you don't have to rush to work if you don't want to work want to you don't have to sit in front of a computer all day if you don't want to you don't want to feel like you're wasting away your entire life grinding all your productive hours away in a soulless job that doesn't fulfill you like nobody wants to do that so the purpose of wealth is freedom so you can do more things that you enjoy doing with your time more creative things 100 um, agree with you on that i really really liked how you broke down that, those four different levels of financial independence. It was really, really cool to see it um, codified like that. So let's talk about portfolio allocation. What are a couple of, I mean, there, there's some concepts you talk about in your book. There's liquidity and correlation. What, what do these things mean? And can you maybe help us out with an example?
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me take a quick step back to the bread section. Now, when we talk about financial independence... And in the book, I just want to kind of quickly shout this out. This does not mean you get rich. That's not what I mean by that. What I mean by financial independence is that your needs in terms of your target life are met without needing to work. Uh, And in my book, I detail this. You know, there's survival expenses, there's discretionary expenses, and there's savings. You can generate income through your labor, and you can generate income through passive income. You can become financially independent by making a ton of money that generates a ton of passive income, or you can be financially independent by generating enough passive income and reducing your expenses enough to where those line up. So you can have a big box that matches up, or you can have two small boxes that match up. And I get through this in the book too. So hearing that financial independence stuff, you know, how do you become financially independent? You do it by saving and generating assets that generate income. So the classic way to think about that is with stocks, right? You buy a stock, what does that give you? It gives you an entitlement to a stream of payments called dividends. What's his name? Warren Buffett, you know, he has millions of dollars in Coca-Cola stocks. They pay two or 3% a year in dividends. So he gets two or 3% of his investment, just handed to him for free, just stacked to him. And as long as he spends less than that money, He's financially independent. All of his expenditures can come out of that passive income. You don't need a lot of money to generate, like to have to be financially independent. You don't need a ton of money to be financially free. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book that, you know, there's a thing called the Trinity study. If you go on Reddit, you'll hear uh, on Reddit financial independence, on Reddit Fire. they talk a lot about this study. The idea is that, you know, if you can save 25 times your target you know, lifestyle that you can become financially independent. So if you want to have a 30,000 year lifestyle, you would need $750,000 in assets. Um, And that does not mean $750,000 in cash put into the bank. It could be anything that's generating income such that 4% of your money, $750,000 is coming to you annually to spend. So read that in the book, Trinity study, Reddit fire, Reddit financial independence, 25, all that stuff. Um, We don't need to be a billionaire. That's my big point. Now, In the context of this, generating passive income, to do this, you have to have an investment portfolio. You can't just dump all your money in the same place because it's going to cause a lot of swings. So let's talk about the three vocabulary we're going to talk about. We asked about liquidity, correlation, and volatility. Liquidity is your ability to turn your investment into cash. And that's a spectrum. If I have a stock... It is very liquid. I can sell that for cash, then tell my broker to send it to my bank account, and it'll be my bank account within a week. If I have buy a house, it's not liquid. I mean, in this market, it's kind of liquid because it's crazy right now. But you know, you have to sell the house, you have to close on the house, you gotta get all the paperwork done, then you get the money in your bank account. It takes more time. Liquidity is the time for converting your investment into cash. And I only say cash because the medium exchange. It's really converting your cash into things that are easier to buy things with. So things that are more wanted in trade. If everyone loves corn, you know maybe liquidity is defined by how quickly you can sell your house for corn. Whatever. Correlation is the idea that things that go up and down together are going to have a lot of swings. So when I mentioned that seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, four percent a year, thirty thousand dollar lifestyle. If that $750,000 is all in one type of asset and it's going up and down like crazy, one year it's a million dollars, the next year it's $500,000, you can't safely extract your 4% a year that you need to live your $30,000 target lifestyle. So the correlation means that you, all of your money is going up and down together and that's volatile. So when I said $750 becomes a million, $750 becomes $500,000, that's the volatility the value of all your assets is going up and down like crazy. And correlation makes that worse. So, okay, I've said a lot of words here. So let me kind of loop back. Investment is when things you own go up in price and you're happy. Houses, stocks, bonds. Correlation is when those things go up and down together. If your stocks all go up and down together and your house always goes up and down together with your stocks, you're gonna have a very volatile at net worth. You're gonna have a very volatile total value of you know money available to you. And that's bad. And what you want your portfolio to do in general is have an appropriate mix of things that are not as correlated together, that you know have appropriate ranges of liquidity, maybe like a few houses, but also stocks, you know, don't be all in one, all your eggs in one basket. And it's not too volatile because if it's going up and down like crazy. Let me give you the example I gave you in the book. If you have $100 and it goes down 20%, you have $80. To get back to $100, you have to go up 25% from $80 to $100. So volatility is how you actually need to do better to catch up when you do worse. So going from 100 to 80 is minus 20%. Going back is 25%. And that, that's how volatility hurts you because you have to do better just to get back where you were. Um, so these three keywords are really important in thinking about your, like, portfolio because you want things to be – you want some things to be liquid and some things not to be liquid because generally illiquid things, they, they, get, they gain more. That's like the general idea. Like the price you pay for liquidity is that it doesn't grow as much. These are kind of very general concepts and, like, risk and reward. But
0: anyway. Yes. Okay of so,
1: knowledge
0: there. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. I absolutely love that. So, you talk about, you know, if you got hundred dollars, drop by twenty percent, that goes to eighty. To get back up to hundred, needs to jump up by twenty five percent. Like, is this what loss aversion is all about? Like, can can you describe this concept? Is that why losing money hurts us because it takes so much more effort to get it back, or am I completely miss the mark here?
1: Oh, I mean, so the, I think loss aversion can play light, you know, that what we find in the behavioral economics and psychology literature is that people would rather on a coin flip, for example, oh, hey, heads, you get $100, tails, you lose $100. What we find out is if you ask people how much they want to pay to play that game, people won't play it because the risk of 100, losing 100 is like more than the potential benefit of gaining 100. That's like a mental thing that people have. And then, so what you do in the experiments, what people, behavioral economists do, is they like shrink it a little bit. Like, okay, so, hey, how much would you pay to play this game? Heads, I'll give you $100. Tails, you only lose $90. How much would you play to play that game? Well, the perfectly rational economist person, you know, homo rationalis, whatever, they would pay an infinite amount of money to play that. They'd be like, oh, that's like printing money. Like, I'd pay five or six or seven or eight dollars, nine dollars ninety nine cents to play that because I, on average, I benefit some amount of you know money. But we find out that people who are loss averse, and this is most people, they avoid those games even when the odds are in their favor. So yeah, that's what loss aversion is. It's like the the a little bit of rationality, how like pain hurts us more than like pleasure helps us.
0: So uh, how much would you play this game? Heads I win, tails you lose.
1: Oh, so, okay. So if heads, I gain hundred, and tails, I lose X. I'd pay a dollar to play that game for like, I guess, like ninety-four dollars in loss or something like that. Well,
0: you're, you're losing. You're, how that goes. you're losing every time, right? Heads, I win; tails, you lose. So no matter. What. No, no, I'm certain I game.
1: Oops. <laughs> Wouldn't pay for that
0: game. All right, so, uh, so decentralized de- finance. Then, like, what the heck does this have to do? So you know what what's the average person want from finance right and how can decentralized finance be useful for them
1: yeah thank you so this is like i think this is like the crux of the book that i want to get to everybody if you live in a nice country it's safe you you generally trust the government your bank counts fdic insured your 401k's in the best stocks in the, in the world Uh, You know, you have no concerns that, like, someone's just going to rob your bank and you'll lose your money. Then, like, what do you need this stuff for, right? Like, who cares? Like, just buy the Amazon stock and you're good. The vast majority of the world doesn't live that life. The vast majority of the world doesn't have that privilege. Like, you know, they, they can't do that. They can't trust that their money will be in the bank when they go back the next month. They can't trust that they're paying for stock and it's actually their stock. You know, they, they can't trust even having cash in their wallets because they're where they're going to get robbed. So what do they do? They have digital monies in their cell phone. And then when their cell phone gets robbed, they remember the password on their head. So when they get another cell phone, they can access their money. They find ways to, like, hack themselves into finance and digital assets because they have to live that life. But the vast majority of the world doesn't have that. The vast majority of the world doesn't have good governance. You know, what is governance? Governance is... Oh, we didn't even touch on this in the whole, this is the lot in the book is governance. But governance is the idea that, you know, hey, the government who's making my money, who's printing the money, isn't going to print too much of it. I'm not going to get a Zimbabwe $100 trillion bill. I'm not going to get a Venezuela, you know, that's part of the government. It's don't print too much money. Keep inflation in check. Don't make everything go up in price all the time. Because I'll go crazy if like my bread hits $10. That's one of the catalysts of the air spring, actually. It's a really interesting study on economics and social political turmoil what's the other parts of good governance is trustworthy markets you know like in the united states today there are lemon laws if i go to buy a car they're not legally allowed to sell me a car that's so bad i can't even drive it home another country you want to buy a car from someone you're lucky if it works the next day because they got a rig to turn on just so you can get home with it you know so there's like the trust in markets there's the inflation In terms of good governance, you know, what happens when someone steals your stuff? They rip you off, right? You want to go to the police and you want to say, hey, this guy, like, we had an agreement. He's going to pay me $100. I lent him $89 a year ago, and he won't pay me back. You want the government to use their monopoly of force, to use their, like, courts to enforce your contracts. So good governance is low, steady inflation, trustworthy markets with information symmetry, And, you know, contracts that are actually being enforced. If you live in a nice country with all those things, maybe you don't need this stuff. But the vast majority of the world doesn't have that. And what decentralized finance does is it gives you algorithmic enforcement of contracts. The contract, this is where you got to listen to the previous podcast, you know, smart contracts. They're algorithmically enforced crypto laws, essentially. A smart contract says, if if these conditions are met, this happens. If you send a dollar to this account, it'll send you a dollar back two days later, plus the interest paid from lending to this other contract. So you have no concerns about, you know, contract enforcement. Smart contracts and decentralized finance, they're completely public and audited. I can go look at the code for anything to put on Ethereum right now. I think, I think that's true. The vast majority of things. Uh, so, you know, it's publicly available. Anyone can audit these protocols and make sure that, you know, all everyone has the same information. It's all available right there on the blockchain. And in terms of inflation the coins themselves are competing for each other. So coins that inflate like crazy aren't going to buy them. Like there's a market to the currencies themselves. So the currencies that get bought at a high level in general are more trustworthy, quote unquote, because the market has vetted them. That's efficient market hypothesis. It's not actually very true, but it's important to Google it. So, yeah, I mean, the average person globally really needs this stuff. And this is not just, you know, North Korea, like, failed whatever stuff. This is like... In Argentina, they have capital control limits. You cannot trade your money for too many U.S. dollars because they know that everyone wants U.S. dollars. This is a major problem in all of like Latin and South America. You know they're very con- concerned about capital exchange and foreign exchange markets. So they enforce laws that like don't let you have dollars. So you're stuck with do- with currency with assets you don't want. These centralized finance can help those people too. You can get them out of these situations of like that they don't want to be in. They don't want to have, like, limits on how much they can trade one asset for another. So, yeah, I mean, you can look in a black market, currencies, the Bolivar, is a common one to look into. But I I think if you are privileged and you you don't ever think about governance and that your markets are trustworthy and your big account's insured and your contracts will be enforced, yeah, you're probably not going to care about this stuff. But the vast majority of people in the world don't live that life, and this is going to be a major benefit for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. Especially in some of those countries where inflation inflation is just rampant. Yep. Yeah, definitely gonna be, be helpful there. So let's talk about some traits of a good portfolio. We talked about, you know, we talked about the correlation, volatility. What else? Yeah, yeah. What so, else is the uh, trait?
1: Yeah, so I'm not, man, not financial advice, but um in general, there's a lot of conversations by economists about cyclical and counter-cyclical policy. So here's the idea. If you look at the history of the 1800s, especially the United States, what you see a lot of is booms and busts. So there's like, oh, like uh, railroads, everyone buy railroad stocks. Railroads are going to change the world. Well, you don't need miles and miles of railroad all right next to each other. They can just share the tracks. So what ends up happening is you get these crazy booms, and then the investment goes bust. And then all these people who have the investment are rushing to exchange their worthless stuff for more liquid things. So you get bank runs, the Panic 1837 being one of the more famous bank runs in the United States specifically. So booms and busts are a natural part of, like, economics. People are going to overbuy some stuff. They're going to find out that they bought on some shaky things because information is not perfect. People are going to know less than others, all this stuff. Then it's going to come in a big crash. If you look into the Federal Reserve's goals and even the goals, in the United States, we really do seek to have a great moderation. We want our booms to be less boomy so that our busts are less busted. Uh, we want to see the economy grow steadily, but when we do a little too much, you know, it doesn't hurt us too much on the back end. And 2008 has really harmed us. You know, COVID-19 pandemic really harmed a lot of those ideas. But even, even knowing that, the history is borne out. Like, since... The mid-early 1900s, in the new age of economic policy, especially Keynesian economics, having policies that are cyclical and counter-cyclical have effectively suppressed booms from being too boomy and busts from being too busted. It has worked. This is an objective. Like you don't, have, you just like look at the numbers. Essentially, now some economists worry that you know government stimulus has delays. It takes 18 months for certain bills to pass through. General governments, that means it takes a long time for money to flow, and you know governments will want to stimulate the economy in bad times, but because of these structural delays and policy, they end up pumping money when the economy is already good, and then you get boomier booms. So sometimes there's these policy issues that can really conflate this stuff. That's why it's good for things to be automated, like unemployment insurance. When the economy is bad, tons of people get unemployment insurance. It's all automated. They'll get paid the insurance, so it's called insurance. They'll get paid the money. So money will flow in the economy and things will be kind of less bad than they could be. Now, how does this relate to a portfolio? You will have opportunities to invest in things that are themselves cyclical and counter cyclical. So when you invest in real estate, that's probably cyclical, right? Like if people are buying homes, the money's going to look great. Like your assets are going to go up. But when people aren't really buying homes and there's desperate sellers, they make runs on the real estate market. They start underpricing their homes. And suddenly, you know, you have something that's very cyclical investment. That's volatility. You don't want that. What are counter-cyclical things? You know, things that generally do really well in recessions, and they tend not to do as well in uh, booms. This is kind of hard to think about off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, energy is a very common stable thing people invest in. Uh, a funny joke, I was, I was uh, interviewing for uh, storage, I was trying to be assistant manager of a storage place, and they're like, yeah, we're the ultimate recession proof business. When it's booming, people buy to hoard their extra stuff. And when it's a recession, no one wants to get rid of their stuff. So when they downsize their homes, they get a storage unit. And I was like, oh, this is like totally counter-cyclical. That's like super interesting. So there's like countercyclical opportunities in common. You want your portfolio to not have a lot of volatility. And the way to do that is to have things that are cyclical and also counter-cyclical so that you're kind of getting that washout effect. You're not booming too much, you're not busting too much. That way your hundred doesn't become 80 because that's a 25% jump to get back to where you were. Whereas if, you know, you're 190, that's only like an 11% jump to get back to where you were. So that's where you really want to like have a steady growth. And that's really what really we foundational ideas of like good portfolios. So yeah, dang, huge
0: rants, man. No, that's great, man. A, I love economics. I love microeconomics a little bit more than, than the macro stuff. So this is interesting to to hear. And I know that everybody listening is, is loving this as well. So man, let's, just real quickly, let's let's talk about a couple of high level strategies that you talked about in the book. Let's just do one of the high level strategies, and then let's move into this this concept of how to pick a protocol. Like, what do you look at when when you're picking a protocol? Let's let's start off with this though, like holding on for dear life. Like, what the heck? What is this? Strategy? Yeah, oh,
1: yeah. Man. So I detail six different strategies in the book. I'm not going to go in all of them. People have stocks. They know about stocks. They have money. They know about lending. They know about trading and lending. That's pretty normal. Holding on for dear life is a joke that came out of like some of the first Bitcoin booms. It was like, if you believe, you hold and you never sell. I'm not, I I think this strategy is a little funny. I talk about it because I think it's interesting. But most cryptographic assets like Bitcoin and stuff, they're not paying you a stream of income. So this, I'm going to try to do this fast. Coca-Cola pays dividends, so holding Coca-Cola, you get money every month, essentially, or every quarter or whatever. Google does not pay dividends, so when you hold Google, they're not paying you for holding Google, you don't have any dividend streams, but they reinvest all that money into their business, so the idea is that if you hold Google for your life, even when it's bad, it'll come back up and boom again. The issue with this is that gains, that, gains aren't made until you sell, right? So like watching things go up and down like crazy is fun. Uh, There's this whole idea of going around about investment as entertainment. You can read Mark Tebow article about this stuff too. But that's what holding on for dear life is. You hold it even when it's bad and even when it's good because eventually it'll turn out better and then you'll sell it when you actually need to sell it when you're old and retired. I'm not going to go into the other strategies, but the the things you want to look into in the book are trading is an obvious one, lending and getting paid interest is a way to kind of get dividends out of this kind of. Liquidity pools, that's a whole thing. Hopefully Jonathan talks about it on a previous podcast episode that I haven't heard yet. And then the most important one, just to kind of and give you a second one, is using it like money. Like this stuff's meant to be, used as money. So if you have like, if you're trying to buy something with Litecoin through PayPal, buy something with it. You know, if you want to use basic attention token to pay people on Brave Browser to watch your advertisements, Pay them to watch using basic attention token. Like the stuff is a type of money and it can be used as money. Okay. I promise I wouldn't do all six. So
0: yeah, no, that's perfect. I'll definitely include a link to the book that you guys can purchase. Go support Carlos, man, go buy that book. Or if you're cheap, just so a like make a zero. Book. Yeah. So uh, protocols, what what the heck is a protocol and which one are you in particular most excited about for the near future?
1: Yeah. So so that's very enough financially wise. But I will tell you my disclosures. So protocols are, I'm kind of, it makes a lot of words, right? Technology, implementation, crypto asset, cryptocurrency, all this stuff, coins and all this. The point is that these are investments and they're investments in underlying technology, which I call protocols in the book. So I look at these investment opportunities based on a few different like frameworks. I want to make sure I understand the mechanics of what they're doing. Like if it's a, if it's a certificate of deposit, that's a common banking thing. So if, it, if it's a decentralized version of a common banking thing, that's kind of a green flag for me. That's good. I'm like, oh, I get that. Like people already value that. People want that. So having it in decentralized finance is probably going to be kind of useful because it already exists in centralized finance. There's other mechanics that don't make any sense. It's like, yeah, give us, a, you buy a hundred of our tokens then you give it back to us, and then we'll give you 200 of our tokens, and you can get that back to us, and we'll give you 400 of our tokens. I'm like, that's the Ponzi scheme. There's a lot of schemes out there.
0: Shitcoins.
1: Yeah, shitcoins, yeah. I mean, some shitcoins are just, like, not, they're not actual scams. Like, there are scams, and there's shitcoins, and there's altcoins, and there's the main coins. But, like, yeah, there's, like, complete scams out there. So, be careful. Uh, Other protocols, other, like, ways I pick protocols, you know, There's a common V like a venture capital phrase, platforms, not products. Uh, In the book, I I say that and then I immediately cite something that says that framework is trash and why. So read both of those. But really, you know, like Airbnb started out as a way to get people to like rent, you know, hoteling space from each other. And now it's a platform of it's a tourist platform. You can get housing through an Airbnb and at the same time get a curated experience From people on that platform. So products often become platforms uh, and wanting to invest in a platform is can be smart when you don't necessarily want to invest in products on a platform because you don't know that much about those products. Um, And the obvious answer there is like Ethereum. Ethereum is the backbone of the entire decentralized finance system right now because it runs smart contracts. So owning Ethereum is owning the, is owning the gasoline, the oil of the system. Um, if you know anything about oil energy stocks, you know, they tend to do well, <laughs> but I'm um, not financialist. And then the third framework that I think about is like, is it solving a problem? So like, there's going to be very interesting protocols out there that like are solving interesting problems. I actually posted about this on LinkedIn today. This is a decentralized autonomous organization that I'm part of. Actually, I volunteered to run their LinkedIn page soon, which would be cool. It's called PiDAO. So Pi, Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It's a bunch of people who just opt in to supporting the group and it's completely decentralized. So like people will, you know, they'll buy the governance token DO, and what they do with that dough is they use it to vote on proposals. I've made proposals. I've voted on other proposals. It's literally a bunch of randoms all over the world coming up with ideas of how to grow this company together without anyone being like the boss really obviously people who have more of the governance token will have more sway over proposals because they can, they have more votes. And it's obviously like development teams who are running the group. And there's like the originators of the group and the founders. There's obviously some structure there around like who owns what, but the idea is that like anyone can just join in, contribute, leave if they're done contributing, they can invest in their products. And what Piedow does, which is what I think is really cool, is that they are kind of the visionaries, in my opinion, on like, the global side of decentralized finance. How do you get people all over the world to have wealth creation strategies that do not require them to have a lot of money? So what Piedow does is they have mechanisms for people who pool their money together, here, Ethereum, and then they will pool the Ethereum together and they will buy lots of other coins, Bitcoin, Uniswap's token, SushiSwap's token, Link, Aave, like all their tokens. So you can pool some money together to buy an index fund, to create index funds together. Uh, That saves you transaction costs. It also gives you single coin access to a bunch of underlying assets. They now have indexes and non-fungible tokens uh, for entertainment, for video games, all these other token technologies. So through this one DAO, which I'm becoming a lot more invested in, both financially and like time-wise as like a member is you know getting these indexes out there to the world so that people can have simple low transaction cost mechanisms to have a diversified crypto portfolio all in one go. And the cool thing is that they also have you know the PhD finance people who are generating strategies for the underlying assets. So this token we're gonna lend these tokens I want to put in a liquidity pool. These tokens I'm gonna do this these tokens I'm just gonna hold and do nothing with them. And their proposals, they recommend different mechanisms for yield generating opportunities with these assets. And then the community votes on them. And if they vote yes, then these new things get created, they get incentivized, blah, 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 blah. And it's like community wealth building through index funds and pooling transaction costs. And it's very, like it's very much how development economics talks about group economics and how it talks about like localized like economic growth. So, I mean, I just think they're like way ahead and I'm super invested. It's a massive disclosure and not financial advice.
0: Yeah, definitely not financial advice just because we're doing stuff doesn't mean you shouldn't. But I, for one, am going to be looking at this PiDAO a little bit closer. This sounds like a really, really cool idea. I'm I'm liking it already, so I'm definitely going to peek into it a bit more. Yeah, I'll send you the
1: Discord link, pidao.org, P-I-E-D-A-O dot O-R-G. Their documents are very thorough. The Discord community is really great. Generally, there's tons of these DAOs out there. Uh, this is something I talked with Greg about, actually. You know, He was interested in, like, oh, you know, what would it look like for a startup that really works on supply chain problems and stuff? And I was like, you don't have to do that, man. Like, let's show you that there are already DAOs out there. There are communities interested in solving these problems together. And all you have to do is join the Discord, buy some of their tokens, vote on their proposals, contribute your own proposals, and talk to people. And you will help them build something bigger and you'll own a piece of the pie. You'll own their token and all this. So I, mean, I think decentralized autonomous is a major future way of working, people should definitely look into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so let's start to wrap it up here, man. So let's uh, do my standard last question. Then we'll go into a random round. The random round here is going to be a little bit different because <laughs> it's going to be, well, you know, we're interested in hearing about a lot of the activity that you've been up to on the, uh, on the interview. Circuit. You've been interviewing with a lot of big tech companies, so if you want to talk about that a little bit, uh, share your experience. I know that uh, the audience would love that. But it's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for?
1: I want to be remembered for having helped people. It's a general answer, but I want to help people realize that they can go up the financial independence ladder. And maybe that's not everybody. There are real structural barriers to becoming financially independent, especially governance. It's a major obstacle that an individual can't control. But if there's something that I tell you here that gets you involved in something that generates some kind of passive income for you, and you can use that to change your job or like go on one vacation or something, I think I've done a good job. So I just want people to like realize that they have more, con- more control and options than they think although it does require risk. Uh, but yeah, I just want to help people. That's why, you know, and so I've done so much public health work too,
0: so, which we haven't talked about. Yeah, I mean, we've got to talk about that at some point. But yeah, you've been you've been doing some awesome stuff. This book is awesome. I really enjoyed reading it, guys. Check it out. I will include a link to the uh, book in the show notes and, you know, definitely we'll be shouting this out during our happy hours and all that stuff as well. But yeah, man, so... Let's get into the random round, which in this case can be a little bit different. Random round. Yeah. I'm just going to have you talk about uh, some of your interviewing experience. Maybe if you want to just talk about where you've been interviewing, what, what it's been like.
1: Yeah. So something I'm going to throw out there really quick is like people tend to think that if you're interviewing, you're like ready to job hop. My job's really cool. I just think it's best practice to understand your value in the market, generally speaking. I'm, I, I interview regularly, even with like competitors and stuff I want to know my value in the market. And I want to understand what other people are doing, what other problems are working on. Cause it helps me with my own current clients to understand like what the market needs and stuff like that. So I don't think interviewing is a bad word. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Don't think that I'm going to change jobs anytime soon. I just think like it's an important thing to do.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and,
1: yeah. I mean, I interviewed with uh, Facebook, but the, the location was a problem. They really wanted to get people who are interested in going to Menlo Park even though it's a DC role. That was really interesting. It was with the Instagram team. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion about product and like how you think about generating metrics from interactions on their products. Uh, so I talked a lot about like, because I do a lot of network analysis in my current role. So I talked to them about, you know, like I think a lot about people, the negative effects of social media and how these products can actually kind of erase that stigma. They can do better, you know, building better networks between people and incentivizing people to talk to each other. And really getting social media to do good, that was kind of my big pitch for them at Instagram. I just, you know, I understand networks and I think there's something here to spin this around uh, in terms of negative perceptions. Touched to Twitter, you know, did a product case study. It was classic A-B testing with caveats. I don't know why I bombed that. That was weird. I mean, I I, I think I bombed it because I don't like to model prematurely. Like I really dislike most modeling. Like I, I don't want to get data... And throw it into like linear regression or random forest or decision trees prematurely. Because I think when you do that, it's like data driven and data driving are like two different things. Like you can't let the data drive everything because that's how you end up in like black swan scenarios or like random luck scenarios. So I tried really hard to like write a lot about how I thought about the problem and why I chose like the tests that I used to do like, you know, to understand them as Weibull distributions and how like, I visualized the problem, why I took out outliers in the context. And I sent them that for like 16 hours of work. And they just completely emailed me back like, never mind, bye. Like, I was like, dang, I wouldn't have done this if I didn't even... He told me I was going to do a presentation. So like I had planned it all for a presentation. And so that was really not fun.
0: Something similar kind of happened to me when I was interviewing for some, for some role and... It was essentially the same thing. I was really trying to showcase my thought process. Like here is, I am a clear thinker. Look how clearly I'm thinking through this problem and laying out my entire cognitive process for you to see how I'm going from point A to point B, which ultimately, and, and just like the coding framework was on point. It was completely automated. Just press a button, it would run, which- Yeah, my code was so clean. Yeah, Yeah, that hurts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it, I ended up just, I, I went to their website figured out how it was that they do their thing and then reverse engineered it in a way and baked that into my solution. And they didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that I researched the company to see how they do things and let that inform what I do. But yeah, at end of the day, uh, I, I could only try a couple of different algorithms and just did the simplest ones possible. And yeah, but I, I feel you. Yeah, these
1: case studies are a pain. I, when I were with LinkedIn, that one's weird. I'm actually still in it. They just, they had an internal hire I passed both interviews. That one was crazy because it was a SQL test. So I was like, I was all over LinkedIn, like, how do I SQL again? And I was like grinding, like, I was grinding Hacker Rank. You sent me like SQL learning videos. I was watching everything on SQL. I learned MySQL, SQLite, Postgres SQL, the nuanced differences between them. I was grinding. And then I still bombed the SQL interview, but not bad enough to where it's because I didn't understand, a, I couldn't do self joins with like, CTEs without execution. So I had to do it entirely by hand from memory and I couldn't like run code to make sure that my CTE was correct. So yeah. I, I hate being unable to run code during a live interview.
0: That's the hardest part to me about SQL is you, I mean, there are like, I mean uh, Azure Data Studio is nice they now support Postgres but they have like a built-in notebook for SQL. So you can do, you know, Repl loops inside of a uh, inside of a notebook to see how your query is, you know, outputting data. Yeah, I need
1: that. I can't. I like, need
0: that too, man. It's hard for me, like, like store it in working memory and conceptualize. Okay, I take this table and I do this to it, and then this is what it looks like, and then okay, now I've got to do this. It's a pain I just ask. need to confirm. Like, I need to confirm that my CT is
1: not being weird looking, like, and yeah. I got all columns I meant to and stuff. Like, yeah. Anyway, so that was rough, but I got through, and I'm at the final interview for LinkedIn. But they said that they hired internally, but they want me to interview for like an economic graph position instead. I was originally content experience, so we'll see. If they email me back. I'll do the third interview. Uh, Amazon two interviews. I got through off personality, I think, and they let you. They tested me on R code, which was great because I ace the R stuff. I always ace R code, but they the third interview was insane. It was six people in eight hours. On a Friday afternoon, I don't know why I set set this up this way. And it was just grueling. It was like, no matter how much you knew, they knew more. And they were not rude about it. they were actually really nice about it. But like, it didn't matter how how deep I got into models and why I chose one model or the other. They understood all those models that I used and the better versions and the alternatives. And they wanted to make sure I knew that I chose my model in context of constraints and other options. And that's not how it works. Like in consulting, you don't get to like play around with 10 different options. You have a viable option that you can explain well, maybe one or two alternatives. And then you pick the one that the client understands and the one that you can implement the soonest with the least risk and minimally viable expected like you know value. And you implement that one as fast as you can and as good as you can. You don't get to play around. So that always hurts because, you uh, know, I, I, do, I don't get to play around with modeling very much. So that was really hard uh, to get so, the
0: Yeah. Do you feel comfortable <laughs> talking about like a particular example from, from that? Thing?
1: Yeah. So this one hurt. we were talking about. So they, the way they work is they ask you behavioral questions in a context. So like, hey, you can tell me about a time like you disagreed with a, with a client decision or a project and how you committed to your disagreement and blah, 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 blah. So they'll ask like really interesting, good behavioral questions, and then they'll just grill you. So one thing I said is, oh, you know, uh, I used this one, I used Lasso for feature selection on this project. I chose Lasso because it was a pretty interpretable way to get these highly correlated things, like to select between them. Uh, And I had these functions available, and the client was aware of these things. They asked what alternatives I considered. I was like, oh, you know, I had considered... Uh, you know, random forest and judging things based on variable importance, but the clients, you know, they're not fans of indeterminate models. They need everything to be deterministic. So the idea that the random forest could output different things based on its, you know, random permutations wasn't wasn't amenable to them. And they're like, oh, okay, can you tell me about like how like, they were like, oh, this is a de- is a decision tree determinant and I was like, no, decision tree is not determinant Blah blah blah. They're like, okay. How come decision trees aren't all the same, given the same data input? And I was like, crap, recursive partitioning. Uh, it takes subsets of the data. And then I had forgotten about, I forgot, I had forgotten that random forest uses bagging and like bootstrapping. Like, so like they would just take you as deep as the math could go until you like started getting a little flimsy. And once they started asking me about like why. Trees within an ensemble learning forest like are non-determinant and also like don't return the same trees
0: prior to pruning. I was like,
1: ah.
0: yeah, I don't even know if I can answer that one.
1: And the thing is, like, I had to research this after too, so I was just like, dang. And the, it's just they get you there so casually. They're like very casual about like, let's get diving deeper. Let's dive in deeper. Let's dive in deeper. Let's dive, in deeper. Let's dive in deeper. You know, talking about latent Dirichlet allocation and trying to like explain how you know, n-gram co-occurrence is how the marginal probabilities are assessed as opposed to, you know, a, you know, as opposed to BERT, which vectorizes the words, you know, talking about like how co-occurrence and marginal probabilities differ mathematically from how vectorization is done. Now it's just like, dude, I don't actually know how BERT vectorizes. Like I don't actually know.
0: <laughs> That's the type of shit that makes me not feel like a data scientist. <laughs> like, questions like that, I'm like, fuck, man, can't you read a math book for that and, like, get it on demand? Like, why do I need to memorize all of this Oh No, but
1: they, they were really good about making you feel like it's okay if you can't answer this as long as you're confident in what you do understand. So, like, I was making mistakes. I was kind of going outside of my comfort zone and being like, yeah, I think my understanding is that, you know, Blah blah, 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 blah blah like it uses like preset models that have relationships between words you know connecting the word finance to budget like with word net yeah, i kind of started making stuff up which is what you do in consulting and you do not do it in an amazon review <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway that was really hard and now this case study with Umu, which i really only heard about because mark was like i talked to mark randomly and he was like you gotta come work with me and i was like okay 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 that sounds awesome But um, this case study is about a rapid turnaround analysis, like no modeling, no machine learning, which I like. I really think machine learning is overdone in a lot of cases. Uh, It's about linear. So it's like linear mixed effect modeling in the context of understanding product usage. And it was chaotic. I mean, like there was survey data. You didn't know the questions of the survey data, which makes it useless. Like if you give me a data set with columns X1, X2, X3, I'm just going to send it back to you. Like I like, I fundamentally disagree the concept of trying to analyze data that you don't understand the features of. I think it's just foundationally bad. So I mean, they did give me the column names, and then I started. I was mining it and all this stuff, and generating like all these like visuals that are really cool, like violin plots with box plots overlaid on top of them, talking about like the differences between these things. And then when I started trying to do, I did like cross-validated univariate decision trees, like predictive power score. I was using linear mixed effect models with different random fixed effects for, like, gender, age, and things like that, and geography. And it was a nightmare, because nothing worked. Nothing predicted anything. My R-squares were, like, 0.004, the smallest R-squares I've ever seen. And I was like, okay, this is actually simulated data, and it's entirely from a random uniform distribution, like a random normal distribution. Oh, of course, it can't predict anything. It's actually all noise. So, my whole case study is just, like... I thought this, I found these patterns. Upon testing, it's pure noise. Yeah. And that's okay. It that happens sometimes because it happens. Yeah, it happens. It does not have to work. Your data could just not explain the situation. That's entirely possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important point for people just because you have data does not mean that it is predictive in any way, shape, or form.
1: Huh? When you get an R squared of 0.001, just close
0: yeah. the up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And well, thank you so much, man, for sharing your experiences with with all the various interviews you've been going on. So what are you currently reading right now?
1: I'm reading this book, Blockchain Chicken Farm. It's about this person who goes to rural China and details how we have an incorrect perception that technology... And metronormativity go together in that like urban space is more technologically advanced, and like cities are more advanced than rural places. And really, just completely flipping that upside its head. Like blockchain chicken farmers, the name of the book, and it's about like you know five G's penetration in China and how like these rural areas are some of the most technologically advanced and casually advanced uh, in terms of like how farmers are trading using blockchain and stuff like that. So really interesting. Not very far into it, but it's
0: really cool. Yeah. Let's do uh, just two questions from the random question generator real quick. And I'll definitely check out that blockchain chicken farm book. <laughs> All right. So first question up. What is one of your favorite smells?
1: Oh, there's a candle. It's like tobacco noir. I like really old school, like in yeah. office candles, like things that smell like brown, I guess.
0: Yeah, dude. I, like I, I love candles, like I fucking love candles and I love tobacco scented candles. Like <laughs> something about it. I don't smoke, but like tobacco scented. Yeah. Candles, they, they don't even smell like smoke, they just smell like nice. But then I literally was like, dude, I am burning money actually. Burning money." oh no, hey, it's what's,
1: worth it. it's burning money, it's about burning happiness.
0: Yeah, I guess
1: <laughs> that's the capital sweat.
0: Okay, what's uh, what's something you wish you figured out sooner?
1: Oh, bitcoin, duh. I mean, like, I don't think there's I'm not, I'm not allowed to say anything else. How to hold a thousand bitcoins for 10 bucks in 2011. Yeah. wouldn't be on this podcast bro I'd be in a Easel right
0: now I don't know where I'd be alright well Carlos thanks again for coming on to the show man appreciate having you here appreciate seeing you around the happy hours uh, man thank you so much for being here and super excited for, for this book and hopefully come back on at some point when you write the second one.
1: Oh, I might have to write one on NFTs and stuff I'm just kidding yeah, I wouldn't do that but uh, yeah man super cool to hang out as always and I'll see you at the office hours probably tomorrow